Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. It is hard to believe that we're only a week away from Christmas Eve, uh, but here we are. And so we're going to continue our Christmas series, White Elephant. And we're looking at the genealogy, or really the family history of Jesus from the book of Matthew. So in Matthew 1, Luke does this too, but Matthew's is, is unique, and that's how we're looking at his, is we're looking at the five women that Matthew lists in the genealogy or the family history of Jesus. We're looking at five. We looked at two last week. We will look at uh, two today, and then we'll look at the final one on Christmas Eve next week. And the reason that we've titled this series White Elephant is because genealogies in the Bible tend to be sort of like a white elephant gift. At face value, they don't seem to have a lot of value to them. Uh, We can overlook them. We can undervalue them. They're not really always taken seriously. But I hope that we see in this series that if we dig a little deeper, we can find some spiritual truth, uh, I think some really gold nuggets of spiritual truth uh, in these people, the stories of these people who in the end of the line come to and point to Jesus. So we did it last week. We'll look at the... uh, a large portion of the beginning of these names, list of names, and then we'll look at two of the women listed here. But just for context's sake, to get from the very beginning to Jesus, let's start at Matthew chapter 1 once again. Matthew 1 verse 1, as we begin uh, White Elephant Week 2. It says this, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We looked at her last week. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah, who we looked at also last week. Skip down to verse number 16. Getting down to the very end here. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So we're looking at this genealogy and the five women that we've underlined that are listed in Jesus's family tree. Now, if you look at Luke's list, it's the same, except it doesn't list these women. So Matthew has a specific reason. We don't necessarily know why he included them, but I'm glad that he did because we get to look at these women. And what we're going to see, though, is the two women that we'll look at today are basically a couple of nobodies. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at these nobodies. Because in their day and time, these two women would have been marginalized, they would have been overlooked, and they would have never been remembered. 
There's no reason why they should be listed in the Bible. There's no reason culturally in their day and age why the writers should have been really included their story in there. But they're so unique and so special and woven into the fabric of who Jesus would become that they are in inspired scripture. And so they are nobodies, but that's who God chose to use. And I hope that as we look at three, three truths about these nobodies, uh, that we will see that God can use us too, even if you feel like you're a nobody, maybe especially if you feel like you're a nobody. Hopefully today will be an encouragement to you that God can still use you and wants to and has a plan for your life. So three truths about nobodies that we'll jump into this morning. Here's the first one. The first truth about nobodies is nobody is too far for God's reach. Nobody is too far for God's reach. We're going to start in Joshua chapter 2, looking at the first woman here of our two this morning. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on, on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. So the story of this woman, Rahab, happens pretty early in Israel's history. So Moses is sort of the first epic leader of the nation, you know, frees them from Egyptian bondage, leads them across the Red Sea, through the wilderness. And then when he dies, Joshua is the next leader in line. So very early in the story of Israel. So early, in fact, they're not even really technically Israel yet. They're still conquering what will become Israel, and that's what's happening here is Joshua, who's the commander of the army, sends these two spies to look at the next uh, city they're going to try to conquer, which is Jericho, which you probably know the story of Jericho. It's sort of a city built on top of a hill, and it's got a series of walls fortifying every level of this city. It is one of the most protected cities, really, in ancient history. And so uh, inside of this city of Jericho is a prostitute named Rahab. So automatically, not knowing anything about her besides what I just said, she's already got three strikes culturally against her. This is why she's a nobody. First, sorry ladies, she's a woman. So in this culture, she has no rights. I mean, it's look at sort of much of the Middle East today. That's pretty much how it's been since this day and time. So she's already behind the eight ball here. On top of that, she's a foreigner living in a foreign city that's about to be destroyed. Now, she doesn't know this yet, but Joshua is, make, is sending spies to make a plan to destroy the town and take it over. And then, as we already see here, the only other description we have of her is that she's a prostitute. So, and we know that God is very clear, you know, on the biblical sexual ethic here. So she's got this working against her already. And we see this. I just want you to, I'm, I'm mentioning this scripture, and you'll see why there's a tie-in later on too as well. So Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18 shows us how behind the eight ball this woman really is. It says this, part of the Old Testament law. No Israelite, whether man or woman, may become a temple prostitute. When you're bringing an offering to fulfill a vow, you must not bring to the house of the Lord your God any offering from the earnings of a prostitute, whether a man or a woman, for both are detestable to the Lord your God. So clearly she's not in the greatest place for God to reach her, it seems, on the surface. And then, to you know, flesh this out even further, God uses this idea of prostitution as a judgment against his people when they stray against him. A lot of the prophets use this terminology, use this imagery of Israel is God's bride, and if they are straying to other gods, he sees it in the light of this detestable practice. So for instance, Isaiah 57, verse 5, God says to Israel, you worship your idols with great passion beneath the oaks and under every green tree. You sacrifice your children down in the valleys 
among the jagged rocks and the cliffs. Your gods are the smooth stones in the valleys. You worship them with liquid offerings and grain offerings. They, not I, are your inheritance. Do you think all this makes me happy? You have committed adultery on every high mountain. There you have worshipped idols and have been unfaithful to me. So in another famous example, another prophet named Hosea, you might remember this, uh, Hosea is asked by God, commanded by God to marry a prostitute because he wants this prophet's actual physical life and marriage to represent how God feels about where Israel is at the moment. They've strayed to other gods, they're serving idols, and he says, this is how I feel about it. This is how Israel has treated me. So nothing in Rahab is going well for her right now, for God to reach her. Yet God reaches this foreign female prostitute from Jericho. Now, how God reaches her, we'll look at more details in a second, but it's very unconventional. She didn't have an angelic visitation like we've heard about in Acts the previous few weeks. It wasn't like a supernatural divine thing that she had. God basically reached Rahab through the CIA, Two spies from a foreign government come to her house, and that's how God chooses to reach her. Pretty unconventional way, but that's how we see this work out. And as we'll see as we move forward, the details will show us how God reaches her and then what happens with that. But let's move on to the second story here, and we're going to introduce ourselves to this woman named Ruth. Ruth happens about just about a generation, generation and a half later. These women are very, very connected to each other, as we'll discover as we move on this morning. So Ruth is subtly different from Rahab, but their stories have a lot of similarities to them, and I think we'll see that as we move ahead. And really, the, story, the book of Ruth, it's an Old Testament book, four chapters long. It's basically the Hallmark movie of the Bible. You know, like I cannot believe Hallmark hasn't grabbed this, you know, IP and done and done their own movie on it. But I haven't seen one yet. So if, the, if you see one, let me know. But the story of Ruth actually begins with another woman named Naomi, who is actually her mother-in-law. So Naomi and her husband are from Israel, but a famine in the land caused them to move kind of next door to the land of Moab, the country of Moab. And that's where Ruth is from. So while they are living in Moab, she had, they have two sons. Both sons marry, a, each marry a woman from Moab. One of them is Ruth. So in a series of tragic events, both Naomi's husband and both of her sons die. So now there are three widowed women left all alone to fend for themselves. So things are not looking so great for Ruth at the moment either. But just in time, as God would have it happen, they get some good news. And here's what we see. Ruth chapter 1, verse 6 says, Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. And that sounds good, doesn't it? Good news. Finally, something positive is happening. We're going in the right direction. Now, for Naomi, that's true. I'm going to go back home where I'm from. I'm going to be able to hopefully find provision from other maybe family or friends in Israel where I'm from. But for, but for Ruth, this is not really good news. And here's why. Deuteronomy 23. So we looked at Rahab. Deuteronomy 23 affected her, the law against prostitution. Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 is also is not good for Ruth either. It says this, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for ten generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. So it is against the law of God for Ruth, a Moabite, to become an Israelite. And yet that's what they're attempting to do. They're trying to get across 
the border into Israel. And the reason for this is if you read the context, the rest of Deuteronomy 23, the first part there, it's because God says when my people were escaping Egyptian bondage, these other nations were not kind to them. They were oppressive to them. And so now they're not allowed in. Don't let them in. He says for 10 generations. And again, we're talking about from the time this is written, maybe two or three generations have passed. So she's not going to be allowed in if she tries to get through, but they're going to try to make it anyway. So she has all these things against her, yet God reached her as well. And just like with Rahab being reached in an unconventional way, Ruth is also, as we've seen, God reaches her in an unconventional way. And it's not really that easy to talk about, but we're going to go there for a minute. God reaches Ruth through tragedy and loss. Think about it. A famine brought her mother-in-law to her. She would never have connected herself to Naomi if not for a famine. And then it was the death of her husband and her brother-in-law and her father-in-law that then caused them to go back to Israel where God's plan would eventually unfold. So as much as we don't like this, it was this unconventional way of tragedy and loss that actually brought Ruth to God, that brought his reach to her. Nobody is too far for God's reach. And that's still true today. So maybe you're, you're even thinking about, you know, I've, I've done this and that was too bad or God's too angry with this thing that I did years ago. You keep holding on to this, these things that you've done or things that you've said or actions that you took. You're like, I know God wasn't pleased with that and I think that I've repented of that and I feel like I'm okay, but I feel like God's still angry with me. I feel like there's still a barrier there. There's a, a wall there. Nobody's too far for God's reach. Maybe you've been away for a long time. You've strayed really far. Nobody's too far for God's reach. It's true as well for people that maybe that you're praying for. Maybe that family member, that close friend, or that neighbor, and you're like, I'm not sure. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. And you're like, man, they are far from God. Keep praying for them because nobody is too far for God's reach. That's the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, right? The man has two sons, and the the younger son wants to go out on his own. And so, really, he rejects his father. He basically says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. The father does that. He goes out and lives a wild lifestyle, blows his entire life savings, ends up eating pig slop with pigs. And as a Jewish man, that's insult to injury. It's one of the most unclean animals, and he's not even just around them. He's eating with them. So when he gets to his lowest point, that's when he decides, I'm going to go back home and maybe see if my father will take me in as a hired servant. Not even as a son anymore, but just as a servant. And so when he starts walking back home, the father runs out and greets him and brings him back in as his son. No one's too far for God's reach. Now, I will, let me just mention this quickly and move on. This is the uncomfortable part, though, that we see with Ruth. So when you're praying for those people, Okay? When you're praying for those people, for God to reach them, just know sometimes he will reach them in unconventional ways. Now, I'm not saying that tragedy has to happen to them for God to reach them, but I'm saying sometimes it happens that way. As uncomfortable as that makes, as your skin is probably crawling as I say that, but it's absolutely true. Sometimes, even like the prodigal son, some people have to get to the lowest of the low before they will allow God to reach them where they are. And so, as you're praying for that loved one, that family member, that friend, just know that they may not have to suffer loss or tragedy or something terrible may have to happen, but... If that is where they have to get for God to reach them, are, are you okay with that? And even if you're not, will you still pray for God to reach them? 
because it's better for God to reach them at their lowest point in the midst of a heap of ashes than for them not to be reached at all. And so that's where we find ourselves is we don't know how or why or all the details, but we do know that nobody is too far for God's reach. As we continue on, the second truth about nobodies is this. Nobody can follow God without risk. Nobody can follow God without risk. So back to Rahab. She has these two spies that come to her house from Israel, and she's in Jericho. They're scouting out the land. They are there. And then the the authorities in Jericho have heard there are spies in the area. So they knock on her front door and ask where they are. And here's what she says. Back to Joshua chapter 2, Joshua 2 verse 4. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. So Rahab here immediately takes two risks in just what's happened in these three or four verses. The first thing is, the first risk is that she helps the enemy. These are not her people. She maybe doesn't know quite yet what they're there for, to scout out the city for its destruction. Uh, But she knows that they're enemy agents. And yet you ask, okay, well, why would she help them? What does she have to gain? By helping them. Wouldn't it be better off if she just handed them over to the authorities? Wouldn't it be better for her uh, to do that? And it would, but she hides them and protects them anyway. And then the second risk is that then she lies for them. So it's, it's fine if you want to take them in, but then when the authorities come, what, 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 again, what is she gaining by lying for them and hiding them and misleading the authorities? She's not really gaining anything. She's risking everything. Because even though they believed her story and they're looking around like crazy for these two guys, if they ever find out that she has hidden them and has lied to them, she's as good as dead. So she's risking everything here. So they, they buy her lie and they leave. And then after they're gone, she gets the men back down from the roof and she, has, she makes a third risk with these men. So we continue on Joshua 2, verses 12 and 13. Here's what she says to the men. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. So she risks taking in the spies. She risks lying and protecting them. And then she risks by trusting them in the end. So they've gotten what they need, and they don't owe her anything. Remember, she's an, she's an enemy territory. They have no allegiance to her whatsoever, yet she's banking on their trust. And again, with her lifestyle, she's not really exactly lived a life of loyalty, yet she's asking for loyalty from these men. And it would be easy for these men to say, well, who is she to ask anything of us? We don't owe her anything. No, and it'd be easy for them to say, no one's going to miss her if she's dead. But who's going who's gonna to care that she's dead? And on top of that, they know, hopefully, if everything works out according to plan, this entire city is going to be rubble in no time. So we don't, no one's going to know we made this deal with her and reneged on it. No one's going to know that we didn't protect her. No one's going to know that we weren't very loyal to her when she was kind to us. And so she has a lot of risk going on here, but she takes the risk and she trusts them. 
I scratched your back, will you scratch mine, is basically her risk. But really, in essence, she's putting her life in their hands and the, life of, the lives of her family members in their hands. But remember, we're talking about following God means risk, and we haven't seen evidence of that quite yet, we don't think. But if you go back up to the verse right before what we just read, before she makes this deal with them or takes a risk, she does make a faith claim. Joshua 2, verse 11, here's what she says. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. So in the middle of all of this crazy sort of plotting and CIA, you know, mystery kind of stuff, she makes a statement of faith. Now, a cynic, of which I am one, might look at that and say she's just covering herself, right? She's just telling them what they want to hear so she'll get what she wants. She does that for a career all the time. It's no different here. But it does seem that there's a genuineness to this claim of faith because she makes it before she asks for anything which you could still say, oh, she's just using them. But really, she took them in first without knowing anything about the situation. Then when knowing who they were, hid them and lied about them. And now she's protected them and is asking for their support. So there's at least, I think, some indication of a genuine sense of belief here from Rahab. Because what she says is that we've heard the stories. So it's been passed down from generation to generation. We heard about how you escaped Egypt incredible. We heard about how God protected you and kept you through the wilderness for 40 years. Unheard of. We've seen how you've, how you've conquered lands already. And the only answer for Rahab, the only thing that makes any sense is if their God is the true God. And that's the claim that she makes. So she risks everything, but her risks are motivated by her belief. That's not what we would call faith. A risk motivated by belief is faith. She's putting her faith not just in these men, but in the God of these men. Now back over to the story of Ruth, which again is, I think, one of my favorite Old Testament stories. But there are four chapters in this book, and in every chapter, a risk is taken. We've already seen one. So in chapter one, when Ruth decides, I'm going to go to this foreign land of Israel, that's a risk. As we've already seen before, everything is working against her. All, nothing makes any sense. She should be stopped at the border and not let in. She should be detained at the border, okay? But that's the risk that she's taking. But the risk paid off because they made it into Israel together. Then in chapter 2, she decides, well, we got to survive. I've got to go do something. And so she takes a risk by going out to work in a random grain field. And so when she gets there, she, she may or may not know, maybe Naomi told her about this, there's an Old Testament law called gleaning, where if you own a field and you work the field, the law states that for the poor and the foreigner living among you, you have to leave the very edge of your field open for them to take and the corners of your field for them to take to survive. Now, it's a meager existence. It's barely scraping by, but it's just enough for them. And so she takes a risk as a, for, as a Moabite, a foreigner not supposed to be in the country, showing up to glean in the fields. But a risk paid off. Because the owner of the field is named Boaz, who we read about, who we saw earlier in the genealogy. So Boaz owns this field, and he shows great favor to Ruth. Because he knows what she's done is not just for her, but for her mother-in-law, for her family. And so what he does is he says, we're not just going to let you glean. We're gonna, he instructs his workers. He says, she's going to follow right behind you. 
And she, whatever you drop, she gets to pick up and take home. So he tells them, hey, could you just drop a few extra stalks of grain here and there? Could you just maybe like be really sloppy, you know? Uh, wouldn't you love if your, if your boss said, don't do a good job today? Like that's your job is not doing it. That'd be amazing. That's what he does. It's like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. And so he does this to show her great favor so her risk paid off. But then in chapter 3, she makes probably the biggest risk of all because she sees the kindness shown to him. Naomi tells her, hey, here's, you, you went to the right field today. You took the right risk because Boaz is a relative of my deceased husband. So he's family. So culturally, what that would mean is that Boaz then could take, could take Naomi in or maybe Ruth in as his wife. We looked at that a little bit last week culturally in a different story. So she makes a huge risk, Ruth does. She gets all dolled up and all ready, and she goes down to the threshing floor where Boaz is working by himself and basically proposes marriage to him. That's a risk. Like, you've known this guy for a few weeks, maybe a couple months. He's been nice to you, but we're going to go to that, that level here, you know? So it's a risk. She goes down, and even what she does is fairly seductive. Like, it's not just risky, it's risque. And so she goes down, and she makes this uh, ask of Boaz, and she just has to wait on what he's going to do. Now, he has every right to refuse her. He has every right to, you know, say, get out of here. He has every right to maybe even have her stoned or killed uh, for being a little too forward with him. And yet the risk pays off because he says, absolutely, let's let's do this thing. And again, it's not so much now. I think there, there are romantic feelings going on here, but it's more culturally. He knows it's the best thing to do. It's the right, proper thing to do. But then there's one more risk that they have to work through. So Boaz says, I would love to redeem your family's land and also you along with it. However, there's one more closer relative of Naomi's that gets first dibs. So we have to ask him first to go according to the law. So in chapter 4 is where we see the final risk in the book of Ruth, where he meets this relative in the town square with other people as witnesses around him for this, basically this business transaction. And Boaz is very shrewd here because what he does is he just talks about the land that's up for sale or that's going to be given to this relative. He says, Naomi's moved back into town. Her husband's dead. You can redeem the land as the next in line. And the man says, yes, more land, more property, more real estate. I'll take it. But then Boaz says, but there's a catch. You also have to redeem Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Now, there's some question on this. Scholars debate on whether or not that's actually in the law or whether Boaz was kind of doing a little white lie here because he knew the guy would not go for it, and he was right. So the risk paid off because, like we talked about last week, um, you know, the man declines the offer because he's like, I've got my own wife and kids. If I bring her in, it messes the whole inheritance thing up, and it just gets really complicated and messy, so I'm going to have to pass, unfortunately, on the land because of this other woman. So Boaz gets to marry Ruth, and they live happily ever after, right? So that's how their risk paid off. And as we see in the genealogy, eventually their grandson is King David. So the risk here paid off, and we know that Ruth's did. We haven't quite seen if Rahab's risks are going to pay off, and maybe that's where you are. Maybe you feel like your, your entire life of faith is just one giant risk. Because maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking you're about a, a specific situation in your life or about your life in general. And maybe you're thinking, can God really be trusted with this thing? Can God, is God really going to make something out of this situation that seems out of control? Can God really do something here in this impossibility that I'm facing? Is he really going to come through? Is all this going to work out in the end like we see in the Bible? Or is it just for Bible people but not for me? 
And not only that in general, but the longer and the closer that you follow God, the more he's going to ask you to risk. The deeper in relationship you get to him, the more risky it will become. All Jesus says when we become a Christian is, follow me, dot, dot, dot. And that, that dot, dot, dot there is a big deal because it could mean any number of things for any of us, but it always involves some kind of risk. There are twists and turns to this Jesus thing. There's personal life adjustments to following after God. There, and the way that we even look at life and make decisions is through a totally different lens, but there is risk involved. God may have you say yes to some really scary things. God may have you say no to some very nice-looking things. That's not his will for your life. But the question is, will we follow despite the risk? You know, this, this church is born out of a series of risks. So this started from nothing. This was like, you know, 10, 11 years ago. This was just a, a thing in my brain. This is an imagination that God gave to us in our heart. And so there was a series of risks involved in getting to even to where we are now. And that's going to continue on in the years to come. If we're going to get to where God wants us to get, it's going to require more and more risk to get there. Even lately in our own you know, lives personally, Kim felt for a number of months God was doing something different with her life and her career, and she just wasn't sure, and I certainly wasn't sure because it's not even my life. You know, it's like, I, I don't know. You know, if God tells me, I'll let you know, but I, I'm probably going to tell you first. And so a lot of prayer and thought went into this, and she just knew you know, back early in the summer, um, God's asking me to leave this job that on the surface pays the bills and keeps us going and all that, but, and we still don't quite know why yet. We're, we're still a lot of questions, a lot of risks, a lot of unknowns to even that type of just a career decision, but we know that God led her in that direction. And I can even tell you, and I told her this a couple weeks ago, our partnership with Union Chapel Elementary would never have happened if she had stayed at the same job she was at. Because now that she's substitute teaching in the district, that's where she made those connections with the people in that school to start that ministry partnership. So that's just one small thing, but God sometimes just gives us a little glimmer of why, a little part of an answer of what he's doing, and the rest of it, we're in the dark. That's risk. That's faith. And that's required if we're going to really, truly follow God. Maybe God's going to ask you to risk relationships with people because they don't quite get your faith. Maybe he's going to ask you to risk financial security by being a more generous giver. Maybe he's going to have you risk your time by being more involved in the lives of other people. Maybe he's going to ask you to change your career path for some unknown reason. Maybe you feel like everything that you're doing in your life is a risk. Trusting God in general, full stop, is a risk, and maybe it is, but that's what faith is. But we can see life as a life of faith as either a risk or an adventure. And so, yes, it's risky, but just hang on for the ride and enjoy it because God's in control. Nobody can follow God without risk. Here's the final truth about nobodies that we'll look at here for just a couple of minutes. Nobody can fulfill their God-given destiny without relationship. Nobody can fulfill their God-given destiny without relationship. So right, the story of Rahab back in Joshua. So the spies are there. She hides them. They leave. Then Joshua gets the army, they march around the city of Jericho for about a week, and the walls fall down, and Israel is then destroying the city. So then we read this in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. 
So in the end, her risks did pay off. The trust that she put in these men of Israel and really in the God of Israel paid off for her. And that last line, she lives among the Israelites to this day. Eventually along the line, we don't have the details, but we have the genealogy to connect to this. She marries a man in Israel, and they have a son named Boaz, who then marries Ruth. So these women are very connected. Both, everything working against them is both in Deuteronomy 23. Both women are only a generation apart because they're connected by one man, and then he is a sort of a forerunner idea of redemption of a, gener- a few generations later, Jesus, who would be born from their line. It's interesting how these women are, are that connected. But for Rahab, this destiny in her life came through relationship because she and the spies worked together to make this happen. Outside of this relationship, not only is her destiny gone, but so is she. She's dead with everybody else in the city of Jericho, yet this relationship fulfilled her destiny. And then Ruth as well. It had to happen through relationship, and the way it happened is interesting. It's with, you would think it's with Boaz, right? It, it, but no, no, it starts with her mother-in-law, Naomi. That relationship is what kickstarts God's destiny in her life. And from this, we see uh, her statement of faith. We, we saw Rahab's statement of faith. And here, as we see this relationship building with Naomi, we see Ruth's statement of faith. We'll look at Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse number 16. Ruth, so Naomi at this point is trying to tell them, go back to Moab. Live your life in your town, in your country. Don't come with me. You've got nothing to gain, everything to lose. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So Ruth's journey to her fulfilled destiny started because of a relationship. And really because she was looking out for the other person in that relationship. It's funny how God worked through her and worked in her and caused great things to happen to her because she wasn't focused on her. She was focused outward, which is where we all should be. Naturally, it would have been better for her to go back. Naomi is giving her good advice. Don't come with me. I've got some maybe means of provision in my own country, but you don't. And as you remember, she had two sons. So there were two women, but only one of them went, Ruth. The other one, you may know her name, Orpah. We just know her because she didn't go. She, She went back. But Ruth did what God had called her to do in her heart. She said, no, I'm for you. I'm going to say no to everything I know for the sake of someone else. So really her self-denial is what put her on the path to fulfilled destiny. And then everything else snowballed from there. But not only then, when everything worked out, that's great. But even after the story kind of ends, Ruth's married, they have a baby, she still shows this loyalty and relationship to Naomi. So let's read the end of the story of Ruth here as we close. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi, right, not Ruth, 
Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. So Ruth still, when everything has worked out for her, is still looking at this relationship. How can I still love this person, honor this person, help this person? Basically, what we see here is she allowed Naomi to do a great deal of raising of this son because she knew how important it was to her. She knew how big of a thing it would be for her. And in this, Ruth revealed who she really was. So it would be one thing if Ruth is sort of looking out for Naomi when she can benefit from it, right? Well, if I get this Redeemer thing, then she's cared for, but I'm really cared for. And then once I get that, you know, she's kind of on her own. She didn't do that. Still, when everything was fully and finally provided for, she still maintained this selfless relationship. Ruth knew that God's provision for her and destiny for her was linked to those around her. And your destiny for your life is linked to those around you in some way. Because if you're following God, you know that life's not always all about you. We know that we want to be God-centered and others-focused. Because living for yourself is, you know, kind of easy and thinking about yourself all the time is pretty cheap. Uh, But if we can look out for those around us in relationship, God can fulfill even more in us and through us. So we know that it's not about you. It's about who. It's about who you're reaching, who you're influencing, and who you're impacting. And then as you are living out your destiny, as you, you do have to make those choices and take those risks for God to reveal his destiny uh, to you, but still we want to function within the context of relationship. We can't do it on our own, okay? So we ha- want to have partnership and prayer with those around us, emotional support from those around us, wise advice and counsel from those around us, assistance along the way, and that's what this thing is all about. That's the beauty and the role and the purpose of the church. We are the relationship to help each of us fulfill our God-given destiny. We can't do it for ourselves, and we can't do it by ourselves. That's why one of our core values here at First Century is we're relational, because we understand we can't live this life of faith alone. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. We have to be together, come together through relationship to live this life of faith and fulfill our God-given destiny. So who are those people in your life? Who, who is that support system that you have? Who's pushing you to grow? Who's speaking life into you? And if you're like, well, I don't know, or your answer is no one, then like you can even look around the room. Like think about, look, maybe look through the contacts in your phone. Who are those people that I can and need to surround myself with in relationship, in community, so that I can more ably fulfill God's destiny for my life? So that's where we that's the three the three truths of nobodies and I love these two stories and these two women's stories are, are I think inspirational for us they're hopefully encouraging for us that even if we feel like we're a nobody we serve somebody who wants to use a bunch of nobodies. Let's pray. God thank you for these stories of these women these nobodies they had everything working against them but yet you chose them you use them for a mighty purpose not just even short term but long term so god help us to see that like these women nobody is too far for your reach if we feel we've abandoned you too long you're there with open arms if we feel that we've angered you too much you're there with open arms if we just turn the other direction like the prodigal son and run back to you you will receive us 
And we pray for those that we love and are concerned for and care for that may we, they may feel that they're too far. God, would you just reveal to them through your mighty power that you want to reach them, that you're ready and willing and able to receive them if they will just turn back to you. No one is too far for your reach. God, help us to also understand that even as we have been reached by you and we aim to follow you, that we can't do it without risk. If we're really, truly, genuinely going to follow you, it's going to require risk. Hearing your voice can be risky. Following your instructions can be risky. Going off what we think is your direction for our life can involve a lot of risk on the surface, but we trust that you're faithful. And so while it's a risk, yes, it's just trust in you. That's what this risk is. And so the question is, will we walk that tightrope and will we just say, okay, God, I'm trusting you, I'm following you, I'm risking this for you, and I trust you every step along the way. And God, I know that we all want to live out the destiny that you have for us. We want to fulfill your plan for our lives. But I hope that we would understand that we can't do it for ourselves. We have to help others along the way. And that will help us to fulfill the mission you have for us to be others-focused. And we also can't do it by ourselves. So God, surround us with those people, that support system that we need to be strengthened and encouraged to fulfill your destiny for us. We have to have those people around us to get us where you want us to go. So I pray that we would think about these lessons, these three truths of nobodies this week and, and say, yeah, God, I might be a nobody, but you're a somebody, and, to, and through your help, uh, we're going to make it, and we're going to do great things for your honor and your glory to change this world for the name of the Lord. So I thank you for all of these here gathered today that you would bless them as we leave this place today and bring us back for Christmas Eve ready for more of you in Jesus' name. Amen.